Well, in difficult times and situations, um, sometimes there can be uh, just comfort um, and hope and joy um, found uh, in the local church. I found this to be true uh, in my own life. In fact, um, growing up in one of the most formidable uh, moments um, of my life was, uh, was 9-11. Um, and uh, kind of what happened there, and um, I just remember it uh, like it was yesterday. Um, hearing the reports and, 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 and watching videos and um, responding. Um, I remember my parents, the first thing that we did is we went to, uh, we, we, the thing that I remember is we went to church and prayed. <laughs> we gathered with God's people. It, it just made sense to me. Right? Like that's, that's just what we do. Um, I, I, I grew up uh, as, as a little kid sitting playing with friends um, when uh, my parents were at Bible studies and uh, involved in different ministries. And so it makes sense when things are difficult, when things are hard, to find comfort and peace and hope uh, with the people of God. I remember college, and I, w- I was working at, at a warehouse and reaching out to people there and, and, and trying to uh, kind of share the gospel when God gave me opportunity and, and still be kind of a good employee, right? And um, looking for different opportunities and um, praying with people. And I remember uh, week after week of just the heaviness, the burden, the difficulty. Just the understanding that I, I might be the only person here that knows Jesus. And as I'm talking to people and they're asking questions, they're like, wait, wait, you actually believe that? Yeah, I also believe this. And then to gather with God's people that Sunday and to sing praises with a whole room full of people that believe the same things I do. That have too tasted the grace of God. I remember just tears. I'm not alone. wonderful energy for the week as I seek to go and love others for Christ. As we look at this passage this morning, we see Peter giving us a glimpse of the beauty of the church. In understanding what God is doing through his building project helps them and helps us when we feel like the world around us is collapsing. Let's look at the passage together. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Let's unpack this together. We're going to unpack this in three sections, uh, two verses apiece, a right? So verses 4 to 5, then verses 6 to 8, and then 9 to 10 as we work our way through this passage and draw out truths not only for them, but for us today. First, the church is a temple and a priesthood. The church is a temple and a priesthood. Peter begins this section by talking about coming to Christ. Scholars debate whether it's meant to come. Is this a, is this a command, come to Christ, or is this as you are coming? Right. Some of your translations make the choice for you as, you, as you're reading that, um, either as a command or as you're coming or coming to Christ. A lot of ink is spilled over what that is. It really doesn't change the meaning, right? Um, as you're coming to Christ, when this, as this has taken place or when it takes place, these are the promises. These are the things that will happen. The point is that as people come to Christ, God is placing them into something bigger than themselves. As we look at this section, we can look at it from two angles. First is the corporate body, or the collective, and second is individuals. Sometimes we can read the Bible completely in individualistic uh, terms and miss the corporate reality of the text. Often these letters are written to churches, they're written to communities, and we can make it all about us if we're not careful. Other times, people can so overcorrect that they miss the promises and applications for individuals. And so we want to look at this both in terms of us as individuals, but also us as a local church. First, Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the living stone. As you come to him, a living stone. This is the one that people are to come to. This is the one that God is forming his people through and in. The word living has been used repeatedly already by Peter. In 1.3, he says this, that they are living, they're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. A living hope grounded in Christ's resurrection. We also see that they're born again. Through the living word. Through the living word. And we see Jesus is this living stone. A living stone. Stone is is a repeated theme in this section, and it will refer to Christ as the cornerstone. But here the emphasis is, is Jesus being a living stone, and it will tie to his people 
as they build up. Verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up. But he goes further in saying that Jesus was rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Isn't that how the people feel at that moment? They're being persecuted and abused. They're being rejected by men. And Peter connects them to Christ's suffering and his vindication in this passage. You may feel hopeless, but you are in Christ. He is a living stone. We are living stones. He was rejected by men, and so are we. He was chosen and precious by God, and so are all who are in him by faith. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Like that's, that's where the passage is going. It, it's showing Jesus and saying he is precious and chosen. Like everybody's rejecting him. They, 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 but, but guess what? He's alive. And not only is he alive, he's this, this living stoke. He's the, he, he's, the, he's the rock that you're building on. But if you're connected to him, so are you. Now, I mean, this is the trajectory of the passage. And then later on, it's, it's talking about how they're chosen. It's talking about their special place with God because they are in Christ. But before we get there, I do want to focus on this idea of us being stones, the church being stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. As a spiritual house. We summarize that the main idea here is that God's special presence is with his people. When we talk about spiritual house, it might call to our mind um, thoughts about the temple. The spiritual house that Peter is describing is the new temple, and it is distinct from the old temple. Its features are new. You could say that the temple pointed ahead to what would be the better temple, the one that Peter is now describing. The temple was the place where God's gracious condescension, where God was graciously present with his people in a special way. We know that God is is present everywhere at all times. Psalms uh, 139 tells us that. But there's something special about God's presence with his people as he sets up camp with them in the tabernacle and as he dwells in the temple. Think about the the difference perhaps in... (laughs) Uh, often, it, my, my kids, as they're playing around the house, uh, they'll be playing, and I'll be sitting in the chair, and Ashley, like, busts on me, but I'll just, like, have, like, a blanket over my head. <laughs> it's just like, like, what are you doing? I'm just, like, kind of, like, escaping for this moment, right? Um, I, I, I'm, like, I'm, like, hiding away. Like, I know they can tell that I'm underneath this thing, but, like, right now, I just, I kind of need these moments, Right? Like, I, I, I'm there, but I'm not, I'm not present and active in that m- moment, right? God in his, God is everywhere, and, and, and it's, a, it's a bad analogy because God is sustaining all things. He is um, at work in this world. But there's something special about God and his temple, God dwelling with his people his loving presence there and even in the 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 
the whole structure of, of the tabernacle, there are certain procedures, there are certain things in place to protect the people from that great presence. And yet they're invited. There's something special about it. There's something merciful about God coming to dwell with his people. And now Peter is saying that you're being built up as a spiritual house. You think that was great that God is, is, is dwelling and, and setting up camp and he's there for you? Guess what? He's come down and he's with you now. Like he's building up a temple. And this time the temple is you. Like this spiritual temple, this idea of spiritual, we have to be careful. This is not like unseen. No, it's seen. It's seen as we look around this room. It's spiritual because we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual because there's something distinct about it. And I also think it it emphasizes this idea of of living, of, of moving, of not being static. We are the building that God is building. We are the spiritual house. It's interesting, this, this idea of living stones, it sounds like an oxymoron. Stone is typically associated with death or being stagnant. And living typically implies movement or is the opposite of death. But here they are combined. This spiritual house that God is building is full of resurrection life. It's the place where life dwells. He dwells with us collectively as a local church. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he, he dwells with you individually as well. Each of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And together we are being built up as his church. God's church is a part of his plan in a hostile and strange world that we live in. Even with all its warts. Next we see that God's people have a special role. They're being built up as a spiritual house. Why? What was the purpose? To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only are we being built up, but verse 5 says that we're a holy priesthood. I love this. One commentator says this. The concept of priesthood communicates access to God's presence and service to God. It also contains the idea of mediation. The priest represented God to the people by communicating God's word to them. And they represented the people before God by bringing their offerings and prayers before God. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices. Unlike the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, the church lives out their sacrifice to the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. We live in light of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't repeat that sacrifice. We don't need to earn salvation or right standing with God through the way that we live. No, it's grounded in his sacrifice. It's grounded in what he has done. 
but in light of what he has done, we live lives of sacrifice. It reminds us of, of, of Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Interesting, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters is really building on doctrine, right? building an understanding of who God is and what God has done. And then there's this transition. In light of all of this, like in light of all this truth that's been communicated, therefore, go and live this way. Our call to live is, is, is a call grounded in the grace of God. But how do we live as sacrifices? Like, what does this look like? Peter later in verses 9 to 12 kind of unpacks this a little bit. It's through our words and through our actions. By praise to God and proclamation of the gospel and by living distinct in this world. This echoes Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, which say this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. A sacrifice of what? Of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's sacrifice. And how are we going to sacrifice? Through praise to God. What else? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. They are called to live as set-apart priesthood in this world. Even as the world is hostile around them, their mission is to live distinctly. It can be easy to focus on our circumstances in difficult situations. To see them as overwhelming or overpowering. A temptation can be to allow them to define who we are in this world. And here Peter is saying that their identity is not in the trials or the difficulties that they face, but in the God they serve, no matter the situation. Don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize what God is doing? He has a building project. He is building you up, and he is sending you out as his representatives In this world, you're distinct, you're different. As as a local church and as Baptists, we believe in the, the priesthood of all believers. That each of us has access to God through Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful here because even as as Peter is talking about this, this is really a priesthood as them as a collective. This is, this is you as a church representing and reflecting God. It's true that we are individually, but we have to keep in context of what he's saying here. He's also saying that these sacrifices are acceptable. How? Through Jesus. They're acceptable only through Jesus Christ. 
In fact, everything about, is about him in this passage. Like verses 4 and 5 and then verses 9 and 10 are on the outside. Like they're, they're kind of like sandwiching the main content in the middle, which is Jesus. Saying, hey, Jesus is chosen and, he, and he's building up his church and here's what you are as the church. But guess what? It's all about him. It's all about who Christ is. The church is grounded and centered in Christ. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. He's quoting this Old Testament passage here and, and using the same language, chosen and precious. Yeah, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, different translations can, can translate that either cornerstone or capstone. I think cornerstone is the, the more accurate since it talks about stumbling. It be, can become a stumbling stone in verse 8. But this is the foundational stone upon which everything else rests. It is first and is the most perfect. It determines the quality of the structure it's the supreme standard. Jesus in the gospel compares himself to the cornerstone in Matthew 21, 24. Jesus is the cornerstone of his church. Everything should be grounded in and centered on Christ. To be aligned with Christ is to be steady and sure. To be disconnected from Christ is to not be a part of the building project. As a local church, we must be all about Jesus. He is the cornerstone of this church. Jesus isn't the cornerstone. That's not good. Look what it says. He's either that, or if they don't believe, guess what? It doesn't matter. He's still the cornerstone. He's still the cornerstone of his church, but guess what? Other people are going to stumble over him. They're going to fall. Like Jesus is the cornerstone, or Jesus is the stumbling stone. Your relationship to Christ as the stone is the most important thing in your life. Is he your cornerstone that you build your life on? Is that true for you? I like how John Calvin puts this. He says this, There is no middle way between these two. Either we must build on him or be dashed against him. There is no middle way between these two. Either we must build on him or be dashed against him. You can deny he's the cornerstone. You can say, that's not my truth. I don't believe that. But when you come across him, you will stumble. Because it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, it's true. It's true. 
And to reject him as the cornerstone of your life is to run headlong into him. To reject him in his mercy is to encounter him in his judgment. Verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they're destined to do. What is the rejection of Christ? It's rejection of his gospel. It's the rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has come to do. What is making your life, uh, on a corner, Christ the cornerstone of your life? It's believing in the gospel. It's believing in the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life in your place, died in your place, rose again, and if you repent of your sins and believe in him, you will be saved. You can choose not to believe that, but it doesn't take away the truth. This is an offensive message. It's truthful as well. The gospel is an offense to those who do not believe. But here's a question that we, we, we have to ask ourselves. What are people rejecting? What are people rejecting? In this section, it's clear that people are rejecting Christ. He is the stumbling block. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's an offense in the gospel which proclaims that all have sinned and there's only hope found in Jesus, not in us. But unfortunately, there are other things that can become a stumbling block for people. Unfortunately, there can be this image that's projected out from those who uh, claim to be living stones That to reject what they are grounded in, to reject what it looks like they're grounded in, is not to reject Christ, but to reject something else completely. There's a danger of building our life and centering our life on other things. Or having that come across like that in our message and how we communicate our lives. People are here this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're offended that Scripture says that you're a sinner and you need Jesus, and you never come back, I'm okay with that. I want you to trust in Christ. But if that's what you're offended by, I'm okay with that. If you're offended because we're just jerks here, I'm not okay with that. I hope that you feel loved and welcomed. I hope that we do whatever we can to reduce the offense of like, our own lives and our own uh, weird behaviors. The gospel is offensive enough. What about you? What about people in your life? What about people that you are reaching for the gospel? If they're rejecting Christianity, are they actually rejecting Christ? Are they just rejecting what you're projecting as Christianity? 
Are you causing additional offense by the way that you live? It's okay for people to be offended by God's truth. That's, that's what we live on. That's what we ground ourselves in. Sometimes we can make other things central and obscure the gospel. We're not perfect. We're flawed people. Only the true cornerstone only the cornerstone is true and flawless, but are we working to remove personal offense? Are we getting in the way with extra biblical things that we're putting on to the Word of God? Next, are you centered in Christ? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in the good news of the gospel? The news that Jesus came to this earth to rescue you from your sins. That forgiveness and reconciliation with God are offered to all who repent and believe. Have you done this? I pray that you have. If not, today's the day. Next, are we centered in Christ? Are we centered in Christ as a local church? That's a question we must continually ask ourselves. Mr. Nate, myself, the deacons, we must continually ask this. What is central at First Baptist? What is most important? What do we want to be known for? To what are we aligned? It's easy for other things to take center stage. It's easy to become known for building projects, programs, or style of worship. Churches can build their identity in these things. This is what Jesus warned against in in Revelation. Uh, Churches who have lost their first love. There's nothing wrong with buildings, programs, or music, or many other things. But they are not... In the driver's seat, Jesus is. I, I, I'm sure I shared this before, but uh, it's interesting. As, as Pastor Nate was, talks at, at Adam about like different music, and he said, you know, if there's ever a service that you can't sing in Christ alone and it works, uh, then I'm not doing my job. Right? Like everything should be centered in, in about Jesus. Like, that should always fit with what we're doing here. Or Charles Spurgeon said it like this, uh, No Christ in your sermon, sir. Go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching about. That's why we're here. We're not here as a, as a moral improvement of making ourselves look good and shiny. We're not good here, here just because there's, there's people here that have, like, similar other interests than us, like, like they're, they're, they're like-minded in other ways. No, we're, we're like-minded because we are grounded in Christ. Like, that's our unity. And what an amazing, beautiful thing that is. Let's, let's not lose that. It's so easy to get sidetracked. 
is so easy to make even good secondary things primary. And doing so also can create stumbling blocks. Let's avoid that. Finally, the church is a chosen people that proclaim God's excellencies. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a, hoil, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verses 9 and 10 give us a glimpse into the further beauty of this Christ-centered community. The church is a new people, a new nation. Just as Peter began by talking about Christ as chosen and precious in God's eyes, now he turns and says, this is true of the church. They may seem to be on the outside. You might think that you're outcast in society, but guess what? This is what's true of you. You are chosen. You are precious. You are distinct. You see, this is a people who, they they got their identity, they got who they were from their relationships with others. Like, we're very individualistic in our society, right? Like, I am who I say I am. Like, community drags me down, right? But in this culture, it's you are who you are by your relationships and what others say of you. And here, people who are giving up their status in the world to, to, to come worship a guy who was publicly humiliated and hung on a cross. And Peter's saying, don't you recognize what you're part of now? Don't you understand what's going on? You are part of something spectacular. And then he unpacks different characteristics of the church. First he says that the church is a chosen race. They are chosen people. So your translation says chosen race. People come from all tribes, tongues, and nations. But the universal church is one race in Christ. We are of one blood, the blood of Jesus. Sam Storms writes this, this kind of race has nothing to do with ethnicity precisely because this race is composed of every ethnicity. It is a spiritual race, a chosen race, defined not by color or culture, but by creed. This race is defined by the one in whom we believe, Jesus. It says that the church is a royal priesthood. The tabernacle replaced by the Christian church. The atoning altar is replaced by Jesus and and his shed blood. And the Levitical priests are replaced by all who believe in Jesus. We are royal priesthood because we have come under the dominion of the king of the universe. The Lord of lords and the king of kings. Just as the Old Testament Israel was was to mediate God's blessing to the surrounding nations, so the New Testament church, as priests of God, is to spread his grace and truth to a needy world. Look at the Old Testament here. We have the the promises to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Like, I'm calling you out, Abraham, so that you might bless others. 
Exodus 19, verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And now he is, he is transferring this to the church. Though there's distinction, there's, there's similarity. And the church is a holy nation. It's a holy nation. No modern nation gets to claim the designation holy nation. That belongs to the church. It's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to to get that right. Even early uh, settlers of, of the U.S., they referred to this, the, the United States, well, before it was the, the new land, right, as um, they were establishing a city on a hill. No, they weren't. A city on a hill is the church, not a nation. Which means we have to be careful of taking promises to Old Testament Israel and applying them to our secular nation today. There's overlap with the church, but let's be careful of making a one-to-one comparison with the nation in which we live. Let's be more zealous for the victory and the promotion of the kingdom that's breaking in and will last forever. That's not to say that we shouldn't be good citizens and impact the world we live. We should. We talked about that in our calling series. We have to be careful of taking biblical language and using it inappropriately for our nation. The church is also a people for his possession. It's true that God owns everything. Exodus 19 verse 5 says this, All the earth is mine. But the per- church belongs to God as his special possession. It's purchased with the precious blood of Christ, as it says in chapter 1, verse 19. We're a unique people who have tasted the grace and the mercy of God through faith. And this should produce in us all this, this great, grand truth should produce in us proclamation of God's ex- excellencies. What are we about? What should we be doing? Proclaiming the goodness of Jesus. Specifically, what goodness? Not only his attributes and who he is, but the one who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We should be proclaiming in all about the gospel and the redemption of Jesus. The work of Christ. Not only are we grounded in the person of Christ, but we're all about letting others know about the work of Christ. If you ever invite somebody to, to, to a service here at First Baptist, I hope that you could take any part of the service. Maybe it's, it's something that's, that's said here, something that is sung, and you can talk to your friend that you invited and say, hey, remember when Pastor Blank said this? What do you think about it? And it'd be an easy bridge to talk about the gospel. Hey, remember when we talked about his, his, our sins are many, but his mercy is more? What do you think about that line?
Like we're here this morning to proclaim and champion the amazing grace and excellencies of our God. He is a God who showed great mercy to us. He's quoting Hosea 2.23. This is this, this section of Scripture is just laced with Old Testament allusions. He's pulling from Hosea 2.23 to say that they're called out and they're, they're this new people, a people who've been shown mercy. The reference to Hosea reminds us that God's plans will not be thwarted, but God is at work, not only saving a people, but setting them apart and uniting them as priests and representatives of himself in this world. This is a work of his mercy. There is no other reason why the Lord counts us as his people except that he, having mercy on us, graciously adopts us. So here's the wonder. Here's the wonder of what it means for the people that Peter is writing. Nero may have his campaign against Christians, but it doesn't hold water to what God is doing and what God is building. Thousands of years after he is gone and his accomplishments are buried, God is still building his church and it is just as alive today as it was then. The building project continues. The special people remain. Nations come and go. Leaders rise and fall. But Jesus stands firm as this cornerstone and his church isn't going anywhere. That was true then. It's true now. And it will be true 2,000 years from now. What amazing mercy. What great love. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for, for your word. God, as we think about your church and how you have called us and placed us in your church, God, have you made us a, a special people for your own possession? How have you poured out your love and mercy on us? Help us not lose the beauty of that. Help us understand the comfort and the joy that comes with it. Help us not pervert it by putting other things as central. But God, help us to live for you as representatives in this world. Thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.